Good morning, church. I'm surprised to see so many people here. I thought if ever there was a morning where you looked outside and and took a thermometer reading and thought, I'm just going to pull the blankets up high and watch this one online, that this would be it. But you're here. And because you're here, uh, let me just say, I'm excited about the new beginning uh, that is happening today. Now, just out of curiosity, how many of you would say home, like your original home, uh, was a place that was much warmer than it is here today. Are you from the, yeah, from the global south, Latin America, Africa, the Caribbean? Yeah, we're scratching our heads trying to figure out what you're doing here, but uh, you must really love us, right? <laughs> How many of you would say that here, here in church, is something that's new in your life, either coming here for the first time over the past three years or so, or coming back to church for the first time over the past three or four years. Is that you? Look at all the hands going up. Similar at the, uh, at the nine o'clock service. Because that's the case, and because we're on the precipice of a new year, here is our plan, our goal for the coming months. We want to take you all the way through one of the Gospels. Now, when we get feedback about uh, about our teaching methods and our teaching series here, we hear two things more often than anything else. One, Pastor, we sure like it if it's practical. And we get that. But we also hear, Pastor, we sure just like it when, when we can open up our Bibles and work through something together. So you don't have to be out there creatively on the edges coming up with fancy new topics. Let's just read the Word of God. And we're going to do that. We're going to do that for weeks and months at a time as we try and digest the old, old story in a way that becomes exciting and new. I toyed with what to call this. Uh, originally, in my first draft, the whole series was going to be called King's Cross, uh, because the Gospel of Mark actually is about those two subjects. The first eight chapters are about the coming of the king. The next eight chapters are about the journey to the cross. I thought, King's Cross. Somebody's going to think Harry Potter, Right. You know, and then they're going to think this is all fiction. I, I mean, if there are similarities, King's Cross, you know, that, that, that train station in London was the gateway into a world of wonders. This will be as well. But these are not fictional wonders. This is the truth of God mediated through a human author by the name of Mark. Mark is the first written account we have that we know of of the life of Jesus. Why did Mark write all this down? Because to be clear, not much was written down for the first 20 or 30 years after, after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Why did he write it down? Why did Matthew write it down? Or Luke? Or John? And by the way, the, the names that we have for those four Gospels, the four biographies of Jesus, uh, there's nothing mysterious about that. That's just the names of the authors. So the author of Mark is Mark, and he had some help, right? But uh, who was Mark? Well, we know exactly who Mark was. Uh, Mark is mentioned throughout the stories of the New Testament, particularly in the book of Acts. He was a traveling companion of Paul, the apostle Paul, but most importantly, he was very closely identified with Peter. You know, impetuous Peter, the, the apostle, the part of that inner circle with Jesus. He was Peter's translator and his scribe. 
So as you read through the Gospel of Mark, you will probably not find any significant event in the life of Jesus where Peter is not present, which makes sense, because what we have here is the record of the eyewitness testimony of Peter. About 20 or 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, something started to change. Up until that point, there were no written accounts. The the good news, the gospel, spread orally. It spread verbally. One of the reasons why there didn't need to be any written accounts, well, aside from the fact that most people didn't read or write, they were no good to them, but it was hard for for distorted accounts to really take root. You couldn't just make stuff up about Jesus because there were so many people around who were still alive who'd been witnesses to the coming of Jesus. So for example, 1 Corinthians 15. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. This is about 20 years or so after the death and resurrection of Jesus. He's talking about the resurrection. And he's talking about what it means and about what happened. And he lists, there's a long list of people who actually saw the risen Christ. And at one point, he even says there were 500 people to whom Jesus appeared all at once. And he goes on to say, hey, most of them are still alive. If you want to ask them, go ahead and ask them. They're still here. In other words, what Paul is saying is that within the first two or three decades after the life and death of Jesus, it was difficult, almost impossible, just to make stuff up about Jesus because there were still people all around who knew him, who rubbed shoulders with him, who who sat at his feet, who understood him. For example, I mean, you couldn't say, oh, Jesus, uh, he and I, we were close. You know, he used to fly through the air between preaching appointments. You know, he was divine. He would just soar through the skies like a bird. Couldn't say it. Because there were people around who said, no, I was there. And I walked those dusty roads from place to place with Jesus. About a generation, though, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the apostles and the eyewitnesses, they're starting to die off. And the danger arises. And it's a real danger that people could just start making stuff up ascribing to Jesus things that he didn't say, saying things about him and about his character that, that were not true. In fact, we knew that there were, we know there's lots of those accounts. There were, there's not just four Gospels. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of Gospels dating from the first two or three centuries in the life of the church, but most of them are fake, made up, entirely works of fiction. King's Cross, Harry Potter, right? In order to to deal with that and to prevent the possibility of losing touch with the real Jesus. Mark first, and then Matthew and Luke, and finally John. All these eyewitnesses, they began to write them down. Thank goodness they did. Because you get to hold in your hands, and I, and I hope Sunday by Sunday you will hold it in your hands. Bring your Bibles, bring your devices, bring something you can make little notes and reminders to yourself. You get to hold it in your hands. Luke, when he begins his gospel, he's really intentional about telling us exactly what this is about. What is, what is this important work they're doing? And so he writes, and this is the, to the recipient of the account, Luke says, Listen, as others have drawn up an account of things that happened among us, Mark, for one, 
And as they were handed down to us by those who were the first eyewitnesses, so I, Luke, have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, and it seemed good to me to write down an orderly account for you so that you may know with certainty the things that you have been taught. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they take the eyewitness accounts from the living witnesses of Jesus, and they write them down. It's not a work of fiction. This is not a Jesus that gets made up. This is not our own invention. This is the real Jesus. What did he say? What did he do? What did it mean? And I want to suggest that that's something that we need desperately. When I started training for ministry, it was the late 1980s. And at that time, at least in the public sphere, there was very little interest in Jesus. Jesus was old hat. Jesus was kind of been there, done that. Jesus was over. Religion was over. Church was over, at least in the educated cultural centers. There just wasn't a great deal of interest in Jesus. Boy, has that changed. There has been an explosion of interest in Jesus, in spirituality over the past decade or so. Uh, And yet, here's the irony. It's not the Jesus of the Gospels. It's a Jesus of people's imagination. And so you read every year around Easter and Time and McLean, these these ridiculous fantasies about who Jesus was and, and what he meant. And the tragedy is that a Jesus that is made up, a Jesus that fits in with all of our own desires, can't really change you, can't transform you. That Jesus can't challenge you or contradict you. Why? Because he's just you, kind of projected out on this imaginary canvas. If you want a Jesus who can really make a difference who can change you spiritually. You need the real one. And that's why we start here, in the Gospels. In fact, and I have to say this carefully, in some ways, Mark of the four Gospels might be the very best place to get the kind of naked, unadulterated, unsolicited, straight-up truth about the real Jesus. You'll notice if you, if you leaf through your Bibles that the rest of the Gospels are a lot longer, significantly longer. Mark is the shortest. The others are longer because they have these little reflections on, on Jesus and, and, and thinking out loud about what this could possibly have meant. Mark, he just gets right to it. And in fact, the whole Gospel of Mark is pulled along with a sense of urgency. If you are a fan of action movies, Mark is your Gospel. This is the action Gospel. There's no padding. In fact, notice how constantly the little word immediately appears in the Gospel of Mark. Immediately he did this. Immediately he did that. Immediately, immediately. There's a sense of urgency and activity to this. It's there even on the very first page that we read. Gospel of Matthew starts with those long genealogies, a lot of prologue. Who is Jesus? Well, let's, let's figure out his roots. Who are his ancestors? Luke starts, well, you know how it starts. Zechariah and Elizabeth, the story of Mary and Joseph, Christmas. We just celebrated. Fascinating. You go to the Gospel of John. starts at the creation of the cosmos. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. Big thinker, John. Mark, he just starts with Jesus. Boom. 
In fact, not only do you get not a lot of this extra commentary about Jesus, you don't even have some of the, the, the lengthy teachings that Jesus gives in the book of Mark. Mark just wants to give you Jesus, his character, his actions. And in the middle of a culture that, that is so fascinated by Jesus, but, but so, so often deluded by these fantasies about who he is, Mark gives us the real Jesus, a Jesus that will change your life. And so I love the idea that as a whole church, we get to do this together in 2024. I love it because it brings me to that, one of my favorite passages in the Gospels. This one is from the Gospel of Luke, but in, in chapter 24, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, some of the disciples are walking along with the, the road with Jesus, and, and this is what they said. Were our hearts not burning within us while Jesus talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures for us? That's what I want for us. Hearts burning with the presence of the real Jesus. And it can't hurt that at the end, we could probably grant the equivalent of a graduate level certificate because what you're going to go through is like a first year seminary course in the interpretation application of the gospels. So welcome to the journey towards the king and his cross. In fact, why don't we pray for a minute and then we'll dig in. God, because, because Mark, the gospel writer, didn't mince words because he leaps right in. So too, we want to jump right in to the story of Jesus because we know that there's nothing more practical than that for our lives, for our families, for our faith. God, would you join us in these moments, not only today, but week by week through the coming months. Join us on this journey to find the real Jesus. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Um, Mark is not a a writer of mystery. Uh, He comes right out of the gate by giving away the climax of the story. Doesn't mince words. He starts right at the beginning by telling us exactly who Jesus is. Mark 1, verse 1. Have a look in your Bible. This is the beginning of the gospel, or the good news, about Jesus. Who is Jesus? Well, he's going to tell us right there in the first sentence. Jesus Christ, or Jesus Christ the Messiah. One is a Hebrew, one is a Greek word, same word. Maybe we think, well, that doesn't help us very much because for you and me, Jesus and Christ are kind of like synonyms. Or we think of them like first name, last name. When I say Jesus, you just think Christ, that follows on it automatically. They belong together, but not originally. Jesus was a man's name. Christ, Christos, was a title. And you know what the title meant? Anointed. Specifically, the anointed king. So Mark, first page, first verse, first sentence, is going to give away the climax. Who is Jesus? He is the coming king. And you say, well, what does that mean? Well, let's read onward. Next statement, the son of God. Well, 
I mean, let's, let's pause for just a minute, because realize that there are places in the Bible and in our own speech where we would use that language, son of God, children of God, the people of God, to refer to human beings that have kind of a, a deep awareness of who God is and, and aspire to live God-like lives. In fact, sometimes the word is even used to refer to, to angels. Weren't angels called sons of God? Yeah, they were. So how do we know that, that Mark doesn't just mean Jesus was a great human king or one of many of God's messengers? Well, it's right here. In these first eight verses, Mark is going to get to who exactly this king is. And we're told three things. We're told that the king has come. We're told who he is. We're told about the king's school, if you'd like. How is it that you come to know him and what he stands for? And we're told about the king's cross. This is why he's come. This is where he's headed. This morning, we're going to look just at the first of those, the coming of the king. In fact, let me show you, if you have your Bibles, verses 2 and 3 of Mark chapter 1. Let me show you exactly who Mark says this king is. He's quoting here. He's quoting a prophet, one of the most famous of the prophets, one of the most famous of the prophecies. He said, it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. What's the messenger? It's the voice of one calling in the wilderness. What's the message? Prepare the way for the Lord. Underline that. The Lord make straight paths for him. Because this, this is a bombshell. This is an absolute bombshell in history, in the landscape of, of the spiritual life of the whole world. Isaiah 40, a prophecy. A prophecy that at its very heart says in a way that is unmistakable that someday the Lord himself will come to Jerusalem and will come and, and be among his people. In fact, if you wanted to spend a little bit of really good leisurely time, go home this afternoon and pour a nice warm cup of tea and read Isaiah 40. You can read it in its entirety and in just a few minutes. And you cannot miss the emphasis there. Someday the Lord himself is going to come to his people and show the nations his glory. And a messenger will call out ahead of time and prepare the way before him. That's the prophecy. And Mark makes it clear. The messenger, John the Baptist. That means that the one the messenger is speaking about, the Lord, is Jesus. Now what's the big deal about that? Well, let me show you. As you're leafing through your Bible, Isaiah 40, this afternoon, sipping on a cup of tea, you'll come across that word that's always translated in our English Bibles in the Old Testament, Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's not, uh, that's not just for emphasis as a way of saying, this is a big deal, he's Lord. Now, what's going on there, whenever you see that rendered in your Bible, what you're seeing is the actual covenantal name of God that was given to Moses. You remember the whole account of the, the burning bush? It's the personal name of God that the Jewish people considered so holy that they would not speak it. They wouldn't write it. Whenever they saw it, they would substitute the word Lord as a, as a sign of devotion and respect. 
that name? Well, we try and pronounce it in English, but, but Hebrew writes only consonants. So we're kind of guessing at the pronunciation. Probably our best guess is Yahweh. But you could render the same four consonants, Yehovah, same word. And, and what you don't want to miss is that what Mark is saying here, at the very beginning of the gospel, is that the Yahweh, the personal covenantal God of Israel, the creator of the universe, the rightful ruler and judge of all the earth, has come in the person of Jesus, who is the Christ. You get what a bombshell this is? That what was only kind of ideal has now become real. Things that were only available in the realm of the metaphysical is now, it's physical, it's here. The immortal has become mortal. The unapproachable is now here. It's somebody that you can hug. The impossible has been made possible. That God is, is so intent on saving the world that he made and the people that he made for it, that he broke through the wall that separated us and he was incarnated. You know that word incarnate? Took on flesh uniquely in Jesus. God becomes human in Jesus Christ and Mark doesn't mince any words. He leads with the climax. This is the universe sundering history-altering, earth-shattering, life-transforming. Boy, can you think of any other words to describe what's happening here? And it sets, the, it sets the, the belief in Jesus, it sets it apart from every other religion and worldview and philosophy on the face of the earth. And you say, Phew, wow, Whew. I don't believe it, but it's good. In fact, I think our churches are filled with a lot of people who at some level would say, I don't believe all of it, but the story is good enough that it's worth building a life around. And maybe we take comfort looking back and say, look, that first audience, Mark and his readers, they're primitive people. Primitive people are different. They can believe that stuff. I can understand, for me, that Jesus was probably a remarkable teacher, that he had a, a very astute awareness of, of the presence of God. But, but look, I'm a modern, sophisticated, well-educated person, and there are just there are way too many intellectual and cultural barriers for me to ever believe all of that. Let me say this, and... And remind yourself of this every time you find something in the Gospels that you think sounds primitive and ridiculous. Please keep in mind that the original worshipers of Jesus, the original followers and believers in Jesus, were all Jewish, including Mark. And, and that means that they had far more cultural and intellectual barriers to believing that God would become a human being than any of us ever would. What do I mean? Let's come back to that word, Yahweh. Wouldn't speak the name, wouldn't write the name. That's true to this day for Orthodox Jewish people. And the idea that God would become a human being in any form was absolutely, utterly, completely opposed to everything they believed and had ever been taught about reality. Their barriers were far higher than yours or mine would ever be. And yet something shattered the barriers. You say, what was it? Mark says, I'm going to show you. 
It's there. It's there in what he said, in how he acted, in what he did, and what it all means. Mark, again and again, is going to draw people back to this. We, the original believers in Jesus, we had far more problems with the idea that God would take on flesh than you ever will, but something broke through all of it. It was there in Jesus' life, and I'm going to show you. I'm going to give it to you. And then immediately, Mark gets to work. It's, it's an amazing introduction. For those of you who don't have patience for a long read, Mark is your gospel. And if you really start to take the truth of it into, into the center of your life and it catches fire, it will change you. Let me, let me just tantalize you a little bit, just an appetizer at the beginning of what's going to be a feast that we enjoy for, for weeks on end. But what is it that changes? We're going to unpack this, but let me just give you three things at the, at the onset. What, what changes as you take this into your life? Well, first, it changes the driving mechanism of your heart. It changes the motivation for your life. We all have some basic life motivation. It's what gets us out of bed in the morning. It's what propels us to go to work. It just gets us through life. What motivates us? What moves us to do what we do? After 30 years now of pastoring and and being around people, I'm increasingly convinced that for most people, the driving motivation in life is fear. Fear. Fear of missing out. Fear of not proving ourselves. Fear of not living up. The fear that what we have that's important to us is something that could be lost. And and sadly, most of the religions in the world just aggravate the fear. Because they, they perpetuate this idea that, that God is up there and out there and, and inaccessible to us. And every religion will tell you, if you have the drive, how you can lift yourself into the presence of God. Buddhism says it's the eightfold path. Islam says it's the five pillars. Judaism, the Ten Commandments. Confucianism, filial piety and all that that means. Hinduism, uh, uh, Hindus couldn't tell you all that Hinduism means because there's as many gods as there are people in India, I think. But... But it's all, about, it's all about trying to lift ourselves up into the presence of something that is unreachable. And carried in it is the fear of falling short. Fear has been the great motivator for too much of what is perpetuated in the name of religion. According to Mark, In Jesus, God becomes flesh. The incarnation means we're not lifting ourselves up to him. God is somehow descending to be with us. And it's possible that as that really gets into the heart, that that we have God and God has us, that the result is a life that can be lived in gratitude and in grateful joy, not fear. Not fear that we're going to miss God or miss out or be rejected, but instead gratitude and love because we have him. And the only way we have him is because at his own initiative, he came to us, knows that we could never reach him, knows that we could never attain him. So I think, I mean, the first thing that 
the gospel tells us, this idea of incarnation, is the driving mechanism of our lives can shift from fear to a kind of abiding joy, a new way of doing everything and a new reason for doing it. Here's the second thing. Again, just to whet your appetite. And depending on where you're at in your life, this is either going to be very present and, and very... It's going to be hard news, but important news. Or this might be something that you just need to, to bank up for the future because we're all going to be in this moment. It is a tremendous resource for suffering. This idea of God who bends low and comes to us. What do I mean? Let's imagine you're, you're going through something. It's awful. It's catastrophic. And you're hurting. You are aching inside. And you sit down with somebody and you pour your heart out. And the result is just a lot of facts. Well, I can tell from what you're saying, you're at Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's stage three of grief. And it's okay. Stage four will come. And this will, you know, not much consolation, is it? What if you pour your heart out about everything that's wrong and the other person says, you know what? I went through the same sort of thing. You did? And then she or he goes on to to show you not only they've been through something, but what they went through was far, far worse. And they're still there. And they say, I'm not going anywhere. I'll, I'll be with you through whatever it is that's causing you such suffering. That's what we need. And there is no religion that I'm aware of anywhere in the world or in history that says anything close to what Christianity dares to propose. In fact, let me... Let me offer it to you this way. I must have been in a real sermon writing mood because this is a poem and I don't often quote poems, but there's an older one, Edward Shalito. And uh, boy, the words are, are, are a little bit antique, but the sentiment, listen to how it goes. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but you stumbled to your throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And no God has wounds, but thou alone. That's what you can say to Jesus. No God has wounds, but thou alone. No other religion would even dare to claim that. One more little appetizer. This idea that, that Jesus, the coming king, is God in flesh. This is, I, I think, the, the only truly abiding motivation for the things that we say are important to us as a species. Justice, peace, compassion. You know why? We talked about this a little bit in the fall, so I'll just give you two or three sentences. The coming of Jesus means that, that for a time, God inhabited a material body. This same pale, fragile flesh. And when he died, the body died. And when he rose, 
something rose. And he wasn't just redeemed spiritually. And he wasn't just resurrected physically. The incarnation and the resurrection of God means that the one who invented both soul and body is going to redeem both soul and body into something staggeringly beautiful and brand new. See, the purpose of Christian salvation is not escaping the material world. It's the redemption and the renewal of the world. New heaven, new earth, that's that's where we're headed. That's what we're going to. So salvation is not just about the soul, not just about fighting sins. It also is about fighting disease and poverty and injustice. All these things that are on the heart of God ought to be on the agenda of God's people. And when Mark starts out his gospel with this prophecy from Isaiah, what he's doing is rooting the whole story in the ancient hope that God's people had carried for centuries, that someday the true king would come, that the mountains would be be leveled, the canyons would be filled, that the world would be healed of its diseases and brokenness. And Mark announces the, the news triumphantly in his very first line, that king has now come. That kingdom is now at hand. You see, if if we really believe that the world is just destined for the scrap heap, then why bother? Why do 40 or 50 people gather here on Thursday and give their whole day to making sure that the people who are most vulnerable in our city get fed and clothed and housed? Why bother? But if we know that the world is loved and prized by God and that people are precious to their creator, then care for the world and its people. This becomes an essential reflection of the heart of God. The king has come. Have you met him? You will. Stay with us. You will. In fact, let's, let's pray for that now. Oh God, we thank you for your servant, Mark. Thank you for his attentiveness to your leading in his life, but we thank you, most importantly, for what he has left us, for the legacy of the real Jesus, for the chance to hold in our hands and then in our hearts the account of of who he is, what he's done, and what it means. We pray, God, that just as those early followers found their their hearts strangely warmed by this awareness that you too would be at work in the lives of your people and that there would be many acts of transformation, decisions made. God, that, that we would make this the year where we raise the banner of Jesus over our lives, our families, our church. We lift his name on high for the king has come. We bless you in the name of Jesus. Amen.